0: Welcome to All The Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All The Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back Stories of survival against all odds and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Damian Eccles. In 1993, in West Memphis, Arkansas, one of the most heinous crimes in our country was committed when three young boys were brutally murdered. There was mass hysteria, nonstop media coverage, and a criminal investigation led by fear, ego, and urgency instead of truth, justice, and accuracy. Damien Eccles and two other teenage boys were convicted of this unthinkable crime. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death and would eventually spend 10 years in solitary confinement. As he sat there on death row, the world caught wind of his story. There was a series of famous and acclaimed documentary films based on his life and case. HBO had a documentary, West of Memphis, and people started writing books about his case. Musicians like Pearl Jam, Metallica, and Henry Rollins were creating music about Damien and his story and holding fundraisers and concerts to free the man they knew was innocent. 18 years and 78 days later, Damien walked away from a maximum security prison in Arkansas as a free man. He now lives with his wife in New York and has shared his story on stages around the world. Today we talk about doing the thing you love more than anything else in the world to keep you from going insane and letting that thing save your life. He talks about finding love in the most unlikely of places and putting the past away so you can live in the present moment. And finally, wait for it, We talk about his love of ceremonial magic. Yes, that's a thing. Here's today's interview with Damian Eccles. Damian Eccles, thank you for joining me on All the Wiser today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, You are remote, I should say, from a snowy day in New York, and I am here in L.A. in moderate sunshine. (laughs) Um. All right. Well, Damien, thank you so much for joining me today. And I love to start by having you introduce yourself to our audience. So how would you introduce yourself, Damien?
1: Oh, I I think the way that I would um, introduce myself and the way I usually think of myself are entirely at odds with the way the rest of the world would think of me uh, or the way they would define me. But the way that most people know me uh, is because I spent 18 years and 76 days on death row in Arkansas for a crime I didn't commit.
0: I want to begin with you telling me a bit about the backdrop of your childhood.
1: In my childhood, I mean, my f- I was born into a state of poverty that I don't think a lot of people even realize still exist in the United States uh, today. I was born in Arkansas, but I grew up all throughout the South, uh, Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana. For the most part, um, my childhood was spent in the Delta region of the South along the Mississippi River in one way or another. Uh you know, I grew up in a town where we didn't even have a movie theater. Uh, you, there was absolutely nothing to do there. Um, there were strip malls where you could get donuts and Chinese takeout, and that was just about it. Almost my entire childhood was spent in books, reading to forget about, you know, the poverty and uh, the dead end lives that were all around me and just the state of despair that. The average person who inhabited that world existed in. I read nonstop to get out of that, and I think that was that was one of my saving graces when I was in prison too. Just because I had already filled my head with so many stories uh, through books that I had to escape into, um, and then in prison, you know, you've got a lot of time to read in there. So whenever you're in a book, you're not looking at those walls.
0: And what about the influence of your parents and your siblings growing up?
1: Uh, there wasn't really much influence, to be honest. Uh, when I was born, my mother was 15 years old and my father was 16 years old. Uh, so they weren't really in any position to raise a child. For the most part, my grandmother raised me. Uh, and and she, you know, she was my entire family. She was my security blanket. She's, you know, every, every kid should have... At least one person in their lives where they know this is the person that I go to when things are bad, when things are hard, because this is the person that loves me. And this is the person that is going to take care of everything. And I know as long as I'm with this person, that all is right with the world. And for me, that person was my grandmother. She was kind of everything to me. Uh, And she died. I was arrested when I was uh, 18 years old. And I was in jail for about... Nine months while I waited to go to trial, and she died while I was in jail waiting to go to trial.
0: So sorry for that loss at such a fragile time, obviously, in your life. Thank you. Who would you say you were on the inside versus the outside as a teenage boy?
1: I don't think there was a great difference in who I was on the inside and who I was on the outside. Uh, I never really had very many friends. I never had a, uh, a huge social life. Um, I just wasn't really interested in a lot of the things that the other kids were interested in. Basically, people were just going through the motions day after day while they waited to die. I knew there had to be something in some way better than either of those worlds, either of those paths. I didn't know what it was. I was too young to know and I knew that I hadn't seen it. So I could not imagine it yet, but I knew that there had to be something else. Uh, so, you know, for me, everything in my life was always just about sort of my internal world where, where, where I would spend, you know, most of my attention would be directed while I waited for something better externally.
0: And did you have any vision or clarity of what you wanted your future to be?
1: As odd as this sounds, uh, yeah. And it's one of those things It's. uh, Difficult to articulate to people who aren't interested in this sort of thing whatsoever, um, uh, especially people who have no idea why anyone would be interested in this sort of thing. But my first love was always ceremonial magic. The point of it, the aims of it, are the same thing that the aims of yoga are, which is you know divin- uh, union with divinity while you are still alive, while we're still present. On this earth Um, very similar to what eastern traditions refer to as enlightenment or awakening Uh, that's the point of ceremonial magic when I, i learned about its existence at a really really young age and it was like as soon as i heard about it that was all that i cared about that's what was what my passion was you know from that moment on i never had uh ideas of of doing things that most people would think of when they think of careers. You know, you, you ask some little kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they're going to say, well, I want to be a cop or I want to be a doctor. Or, I want to be a lawyer. or I want to be an astronaut. I never experienced those things for, for me, it was always about ceremonial magic. I knew that that's what I wanted to be the focal point of my life. I did not know how that would translate into, you know, something like earning a living in the adult world, but I knew that that was what was important to me. And, and I think that really is one of the things that, you know, whenever I'm doing public talks or anything that I always say is one of the most important carry away things from this is, if there's something in your life that you love wholeheartedly, and you don't know how you're going to monetize that or or use it to survive in the world in some way, don't worry about that. Just focus on doing what it is that you love and let the rest of it work itself out, which it tends to do um, in one way or another.
0: Well, I love that your childhood dream came true because I know that is so much of the work that you're doing today. You've given us the backdrop of your upbringing, the town, sort of who you were as a teenage boy in 1994, as you've touched on in the wake of certainly the most heinous crime in the history of Arkansas and arguably one of the country's most, most brutal and heinous crimes. What
1: happened to you? It was in the midst of what people now in hindsight call satanic panic Uh, was a time period in the U S whenever lots of people, not just in the South uh, but across the country and places you wouldn't even expect it. uh, You know, like California, people were being accused of, you know, carrying out in some cases, hundreds of thousands of human sacrifices across the globe for some shadowy reason. Uh, But, a lot of people ended up getting swept into into the prison system. Some people you know died in prison were never re- released. In West Memphis, Arkansas, three eight-year-old boys were found murdered one day. Um, they went out to play, disappeared. a huge search hunt was called whenever they did finally find them immediately rumors started sweeping through the town that, Whoever had killed them, it had been some sort of human sacrifice ritual, which was one of the things that made them automatically start pointing at me because they say, well... You know, you're the one who is ta- reading these odd books at the library and talking about ceremonial magic and all this sort of stuff. So, in their minds, those two things were the same thing. So, therefore, they automatically assumed I was guilty. Me and the other two guys ended up being sent to prison. I was sent to death row, given um, three death sentences. One of the other guys was sentenced to life without parole, and the other one was sentenced to life plus two forty-year sentences.
0: And I know at the time, one of the other suspects was your best friend Jason, mm-hmm. um, sort of your one and only friend. As yes, I read, yes. Um, who was a few years younger than you? Yes. So, um, you and your best friend Jason, who you kind of have described as your only friend at the time, um, the suspicion turns on you, and a third boy in town. At what point did you know that the focus of the investigation of the murder of these three young boys was on you?
1: Immediately. Uh, one of the cops actually said that the second they found the bodies, the first thing out of his mouth was Damien Eccles finally did it. He went and killed somebody. I was automatically his first suspect. A lot of the reason for that is because he, along with some of the other cops, had been sent off to be trained by, during the satanic panic, what they called cult experts. So you had cops from all over the country sent to be sent to these seminars where they were told uh, like pretty much everything you could possibly imagine uh, points towards a satanic ritualistic murder. They were training people in something that was, uh, incredibly dangerous. I mean, it was no different from techniques that they were using during the middle ages to identify witches. And this guy was one of those people and he, his entire job, his entire career was based on, uh, rounding up and harassing teenagers in our neighborhood uh, under the guise of trying to find out more information about all these underground satanic cults operating throughout the country.
0: Yeah, I think that historical context and presumably I I think I have a deeper understanding than most people because early as a journalist, I covered, you know, many high profile trials But the environment, especially when the country and the media is watching and you have a small town and law enforcement under massive pressure outside Mm -hmm. internally
1: to
0: come up with a, you know, somebody who's responsible to alleviate the fear of the community, to create justice for this families, all these things that you would, of course, want. But that created certainly the environment that led up to your arrest. I know I oh, that. Deeply. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, you had, uh, you know, the public was just almost insane with fear at the time. It was, whenever these murders happened, it was the only thing that anyone was talking about on TV. So, you know, it was not just that they have local pressure on them to wrap this up as quickly as possible, but they also had national pressure being focused on them.
0: Can you share with us the circumstances leading up to your arrest, and how both Jesse and Jason played a role in that
1: it was pretty much the same thing every day. you know they want to ask the same questions over and over and over and and, and you know you know you didn't you didn 't do it, so you 're watching these people you know flounder around and waste time. On you instead of putting it into actually solving the case. So that that kind of baffles you to begin with. You would think, you know, okay, they're going to ask me questions one time and then move on about their way. They're going to realize that a teenage kid didn't do this, but they didn't. But I do know that the reason we were arrested is because they had picked up Jesse and over a period of um, somewhere between 12 to 14 hours, had coerced a confession out of him in which they had gotten him to implicate me as well as Jason Baldwin.
0: And Jesse, explain Jesse, because um, his his IQ and... um, I think mental and intellectual capacity is really important in this story. Uh,
1: Jesse Muskelly was a borderline mentally handicapped uh, teenager in our neighborhood. That even though he was seventeen at the time he was arrested, he would have been functioning more like uh, anywhere from an eight to a twelve year old. Uh, so you 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 know the average person in prison has an IQ of something like eighty five to begin with, which is you know still well below normal. But when you're talking about someone um, as biologically, uh, I, I don't even know the word, um, just functioning below par the way he was, you're talking about an incredibly suggestible individual.
0: And you touched on this a little bit, but if you can expand, what role do you think that your physical appearance and your interest And how the town experienced you and their perceptions about you, what role did that play in the investigation? You loved bands like Metallica and you had dark black hair and juxtaposed that against the community you're living in.
1: Well, we come from a community when, I mean, even in the 90s in West Memphis, Arkansas, like I said, you're talking about a place that still doesn't even have a movie theater. Um, It's Kind of like going back to the 70s, even in the 90s. Uh, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been back there. But it's just a place that's not was not very accepting, was not very open. If you did not fit in with their idea of what normal was, then they really didn't have a great deal of use for you.
0: So you are very publicly and wrongfully accused of being the head of a satanic cult and the ringleader of a brutal unthinkable crime how does it feel to be called a killer and especially of children which is just
1: heartbreaking you're in such a deep state of trauma you keep thinking surely someone's going to put a stop to this surely someone's going to realize what's going on here and fix this situation someone's going to step in and rectify it you know you you think i'm a teenager. These are supposed to be adults. I can see that there's obviously something wrong here. Why, why isn't someone else doing something? None of it makes any sense. Your entire life is being destroyed. And you've got people that don't even look at you as a human being. It destroys you in ways that the average person has no way of understanding.
0: What do you remember about the time of the conviction and your early experience in jail?
1: Very little, to be honest. Um, I remember in the very early years, like for the first two to three years, maybe being incredibly angry. You have seen that everything you've been taught will prevail in your entire life uh, justice and goodness and Truth, all these sorts of things, how the American system is designed to make sure that those things always come out. You have seen that it's a lie to the core, that it is full of people who will murder you in order to do nothing but further their own career. And they don't care. You mean that little to them. You have seen that that's what the world consists of. Whenever you feel that way as a teenager, as a 20 year old, it destroys you inside
0: what is the experience of living on death row paint a picture of the day-to-day
1: you are pretty much sealed up inside a bank vault um for what is to be the rest of your life as far as you know it as far as you understand it and as far as you can see it they put you inside a concrete cell with a solid steel door, and as far as the state is concerned, that is going to be your new home until they take you out and execute you, even in those kinds of horrendous conditions. Most people are going to just give in to the lowest uh, forms of despair and fear, and and they pretty much just give up, and they sit there and, and wait for execution to come. I did not want to be like that I didn't want to be one of those people you know you see them walking around and it's almost like they're dead before they ever even execute them I did not want that to be my lot in life so I tried to to the best of my ability to turn my cell into a monastery
0: expand on that what did you focus on and what gets you through those days of your life
1: I was with um, my wife at the time, Lori. So mostly what I saw, what I focused on was the world that we still had together, that we had formed together, whether it was books that we were reading or movies that we had watched at the same time on television, her outside and me inside, whatever it was, we lived in a a a world that consisted of things that were dear to us and that we were both sharing um that and the practice of ceremonial magic uh, by the time i walked out i was doing that up to eight hours a day uh and it's one of those things that allows you to experience growth and change within yourself even in an environment that restrictive and, and limited and suffocating uh so I never did give into that feeling of stagnation that I would see swallow people around me whole.
0: Categorically, I and you just spoke to, to some of the positives, but I, I imagine most of it is beyond sort of dark and unimaginable. Are there any unexpected moments of humanity for you in your 20 years?
1: I'm sure there are. I'm sure there were probably hundreds of them. Uh, everything from, you know, all the people who came together to raise money to get us out from doing bake sales and benefit concerts and, uh, yard sales and raffling off items, uh, helping put together art shows. I mean, people did all kind of put together websites and Facebook pages and all sorts of stuff to spread awareness about the case to people who stepped up. You know, uh, Henry Rollins one time, for example, just he alone went out and did a tour and gave all the money from the tour to pay for DNA testing that ended up being about $200,000 all total. So there were tons of stuff like that. It was, you know, those things were uh, an everyday occurrence. I was in a situation where every single day of my life was filled with some of the most horrible things that humanity can do to each other. And that was also filled with some of the most amazing, generous, and beautiful things that humanity can do to one another.
0: What about moments of humanity within? the community of the prison within those internal walls.
1: I don't know. It, it, it's not like, you, it's, there's no way to describe things like that. Um, there's, there's just not.
0: How often did you think about dying? Is, was it something that you were afraid of or how were you living with that?
1: It was something I did not consider very much at all, to be quite honest. I knew from, you know, number one, the moment that Lori came into my life, I knew into the core of my being that these people can't kill me now. That they can do other horrible things to me. They might be able to beat me or starve me or do whatever else they want, but for some reason I felt like these people cannot murder me now. There it's like something in my life just clicked into place in a way that I experienced The sensation of divine protection, the moment that she came into my life. So honestly, I didn't think about it a lot at all. It's like to most people, though that 20 years in prison is like the crux of my existence, the be all and the end all. You know, yes, I did go through something that wasn't pleasant, but I don't define myself by that. You know, I don't sit around thinking about it a lot or reminiscing about it. And I, I suffered a kind of um, brain trauma also due to the fact that I spent uh, almost a solid decade in solitary confinement where it did a lot of things that we didn't even realize was happening to me. It changes the way the human brain is is wired. Uh, they're doing studies on it now to figure out what the full impact and effects that long-term solitary confinement has on the human psyche. But one of the things, you know, for example, I lost things like facial recognition ability, voice recognition ability. Um, another thing that was really, really damaged was my short-term memory. Uh, I often have to ask like up to five or six times a day, what day of the week is it? You know, what is today? It sounds kind of, Horrible, almost like an affliction. You know, whenever I tell somebody it can be so bad that sometimes it will happen right in the middle of a sentence and I will have to look at whoever I'm talking to and ask, what were we just talking about? And they'll have to describe it to me. That's the level of damage. But it's not in a way that impairs my functioning at all, uh, you know, my survival out here in the world. It, it hasn't affected uh the things that make me happy. For the most part, it just sort of, cleansed away or swept away all of the things that I probably shouldn't be thinking about or dwelling on anyway, if I want to live any sort of happy, productive life.
0: And it was, I imagine that's all sensory deprivation. Mm-hmm. How much exposure did you have on a daily basis to sunlight, to um, what? what is a day in the life of... Solitary confinement.
1: There is no sunlight. I did not see sunlight for, uh, you know, I wasn't exposed to sunlight or fresh air or anything like that for almost 10 straight years. If I was in what they call a super maximum security prison. There's only a very few of them in the United States. I think something like maybe five of them. Uh, it's supposed to be um, the highest of high security. A lot of them are even underground. Uh, so, they say that you're, you're in your cell 23 hours a day and you're allowed out of your cell for one hour, but what that actually means is they take you out of your cell and put you in another cell for an hour, and that's considered your outside time. That's the yard, as they call it. Uh, that, that's it. That's your interaction. Your The entirety of your interaction with other human beings consists of guards who come in periodically to destroy everything in your cell or whenever they open the little slot to slide your food in.
0: And eventually there is, which you mentioned, a HBO documentary, which turns into a series. And I believe it won an Emmy and was nominated for an Academy Award. The heart of the investigative film and work was blatant misjustice during the trial and your innocence. As you said, the film is incredibly popular around the world and everyone from very high profile actors and musicians to most importantly, tens of thousands of everyday people become passionate about your innocence and, and the writing of the wrong injustice. justice. I know letters start to pour in from around the world. Um, Bake sales are happening. People are raising money for a legal fund to reevaluate the case. Um, I read or heard you say that prison guards were mad at you because of the sheer number of letters that you mm-hmm. receiving. Yes. Yeah. What did those letters mean to you and belief in you? What did What did that mean to you?
1: Well, it just gives you, you've, like I said, you've realized that the system is corrupt. You no longer expect any hope to or help to come from that whatsoever. But then whenever you see people outside starting to notice and starting to pay attention, that's the only thing that those within the system care about. That's the only thing that they have to protect themselves against is people. On the outside beginning to look in and, and see what all's going on inside the system and they don't want that happening. So if there is going to be any kind of justice, the only thing that's going to bring it about are people in the outside world paying attention. As a
0: result of the film, you met your wife and the love of your life, Lori. Tell me about that and the process of falling in love with Lori.
1: I knew from the very first letter that I ever got from Lori that it was, that something different was going on there, that she was unlike anyone that I had ever known before. I knew that from the very first letter that I ever got from her. We corresponded with each other for, um, about three years before we got married. Once we got married, she pretty much took over the entirety of my case uh, from top to bottom. She was the one that was out there raising funds. She was the one out there trying to collect evidence. Uh, whenever they were trying to find DNA to see whose DNA matched what was left at the crime scene, she was the one who was out going through people's trash cans to find cigarette butts to get the DNA match off of. Uh, she is pretty much the reason that I was not executed by the state.
0: And it was an unexpected union in many ways, but she was really living her life in New York. And I believe she was an architect at the time. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And a friend said, oh, you should come and see this film. Um, And that was, that was the beginning. Yes. At what point do you learn that you are going to be released?
1: the day before I was released.
0: And can you explain specifically, so people who don't know um, the details of the case, why you
1: were released? A lot of new evidence had been uh, gradually being brought forward. You know, for example, we had someone, after they found out that the DNA at the crime scene didn't match me or the other two guys, that it matched someone else, uh, we also found... um, Three eyewitnesses who came forward and said that they saw the person whose DNA was found at the crime scene. They saw that person with all three of the victims within an hour of the time they were murdered. Uh, I mean, we had, you know, and by that point, the satanic panic situation had come to an end. Uh, Eventually, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled. That we were going to get a new evidentiary hearing. Um, The prosecutor knew that meant we were going to end up getting a new trial because we were told that we could present all of the new evidence that we had finally come up with after all these years. Uh, So instead, they get together with our attorneys and they hammer out a deal called an Alfred plea. I had never heard of an Alfred plea before. Essentially, what it means is you are. Um, accepting a guilty plea while at the s- same time being allowed to legally maintain your innocence. It makes no sense whatsoever. And the only reason that it exists is so that the state can't be held responsible um, for sending an innocent person to prison and allowing a murderer to walk free. Ever since it got such uh, a big level of publicity off of our case, it's been being used more and more often. Which is both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because at least innocent people aren't being put to death, but a curse because it allows the state to uh, get away with what they've done without giving any sort of recompense to the person they've wronged at all. Whenever we walked out of prison, I did not have a single penny to my name. I was basically having to start my life from scratch after spending 20 years sitting in a box. So at least people aren't being killed, but At the same time, they are being subjected to uh, a whole new level of trauma by having to make their way through the world without ever even having their names cleared.
0: How old were you when you were released?
1: Uh, It would have been in 2011. Um, I was born in 74. What's that, 37? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm horrible at math. I'm just agreeing not yeah. without <laughs> using a <the> calculator. <laughs> um, the process of re-entry, I, you went from 10 years in solitary confinement to Manhattan, which mm-hmm. is quite the transition. What is that process for you?
1: I honestly can't tell you very much about that at all just because I have very little memory of the first 2 years that I was out of prison. I do know that it drove me to the point of um a nervous breakdown. You know where I I was in bed for several weeks just to the level of overload uh that You know, not just due to life out here, but just constant contact with people, which is not something you are used to in solitary confinement. If you put everything from the first two years of of my release together that I can remember, it would come to maybe a few hours of time.
0: Something that's a huge part of who you are is magic, which you've touched on. For people who don't understand, how would you describe it?
1: I would describe it as something very, very similar to techniques like uh, Tai Chi and Qigong in that it relies on use activating and using um, the body's internal energy system. Uh, it also has a lot of similarities to yoga. Beethoven one time, he said something that I thought was probably the best way to describe what you're trying to do through the process of practicing ceremonial magic that I've ever heard. He said that like the highest ideal, the highest aim that we can have is to approach divinity as closely as you possibly can gather its rays and then disseminate them out to mankind. And you do that. However you do that, whether it's through writing music or whether it's through creating art or uh, making a television show or hosting a podcast, whatever it is, you to the best of your ability, transform yourself into a vehicle uh, to, Bring more of that infinite consciousness into the realms of time and space. And that's what we're focusing on whenever we're focusing on uh, the techniques and rituals of ceremonial magic.
0: What are some of the rituals?
1: things like uh one of the main ones the one that i always tell people was one of the most instrumental uh in preserving my sanity and my life whenever i was on death row is one called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram what the whole point of this ritual is it does the same thing that things like saging or smudging a room does in that it purifies the environment. It sort of pushes uh, lower vibrational residue out of a space. But it's also like doing calisthenics for your aura. It it strengthens um, things within us that we aren't even aware that we possess. You are flushing your energy system out with new, fresh, chi, prana, whatever you want to call it, and flushing the old out. So a lot of those negative emotions we feel, like anger and despair, that's energy trapped in our system. The quicker we can flush that out, the quicker we, we no longer walk around consumed by those kinds of emotions and energies.
0: Who doesn't want that? <laughs> um, you spoke on how the magic is intricately linked to art and what you create in the world. Mm-hmm some of your art and self-expression in the world. I know you've had art shows around the country. You're an author. You've collaborated with some of the most famous musicians in the world. What role does art play in your life, the outward
1: expression of art? We come here for a very specific reason, to manifest a very specific thing. We have a purpose. And I think the way we find our happiness in life and in this world is by finding what our purpose is and then dedicating it dedicating ourselves to it 100%. I think the more you can do that, the happier you're going to be in life. And for me, what that purpose always was was ceremonial magic. Not only practicing it, learning it, you know you know it, it excites me learning things that people uh, have sort of forgotten or have been swept under the rug for in some cases thousands of years. That's what always made me excited. For me, visual art was a vehicle to express some of these same ideas and concepts and practices. And whenever I felt like I had exhausted that in the visual realm, I just announced one day that uh I'm not going to do art shows anymore. I'm retiring from the visual art world so that I can focus on uh other avenues that I f- feel are just more rewarding. Like for me, in my case, that's... uh writing
0: you have you know i think such a optimistic and probably a a reflection of your deep presence in the in the current moment as opposed to the past but it really is as i hear you speak such a healthy and positive perspective based on what you've been through because i imagine a lot of people go to a very different headspace yes um and reconciling everything that happened to you, I'm curious if you have found forgiveness for the people who were involved and um, in wrongfully convicting you of this heinous crime.
1: I think, um, first off, I would have to say yes, but not. I don't say that when I'm talking about forgiveness. I probably don't mean what most people think that I mean. Like you know some overwhelming feeling of love or generosity or what have you for, you know, the people who did you wrong. That's not what I experienced. To me, what forgiveness is, is I don't care. And as, as strange as that sounds, I realized really quickly that your life is going to move in the direction that you focus your energy in. So if you focus your energy on, you know, you constantly hold scenes and images and memories in your mind of times when you were screwed over or done bad or this person did that to me or this person did this to me, then you're going to be a pretty miserable person. Or you can shift that attention onto things that make you happy, things that you know fulfill your life in some way. And what happens is that gradually you realize you don't care about that other stuff anymore. You don't care about what those people are doing or, or what they've done because you are completely immersed in living and enjoying your life. Uh, so to me, that's what forgiveness is. Uh, so I would say that I've forgiven them just because honestly, for the most part, I don't really even think about them. I did a tour one time of, of, of public talks, just traveling around the country, talking all the time. And, and the point of that for me, one of the things I kept trying to express to people uh, and, and hoping that it would bleed over into their own lives and the way that they look at their own lives is I would tell people over and over and over. People come up to me all the time and they say, I'm sorry for what you went through. I'm sorry that this happened to you. And I always say, I'm not. Nothing bad happened to me. Not the poverty, the absolute grinding poverty of of youth, not being convicted of something heinous that I didn't even do, not spending all those years in solitary confinement. You know, none of those things happened to me. All of those things happened for me. I couldn't tell it at the time. When I was going through those things, I couldn't see how they were going to be of any benefit to me whatsoever. I just saw the end of my life. I saw pain. I saw humiliation and degradation. I saw loneliness. I did not see while I was going through those things how this was going to benefit me in any way whatsoever. But once I did come out the other side, looking back, I could see how something good came from every single thing that I would have said was bad or horrific in my life. And I think... When you really start to pay attention to things, I think for the most part, that's true in most of our cases. We just don't look at the right things. We focus on the negative aspects of it instead of the positive or the gains.
0: Do you think that the real killer or killers will ever be discovered?
1: I have no idea. You know, once again, it's one of those things that I don't think about because it will drive you insane. It will make you miserable. Things that you have no control over, things that there's no way for you to ever know an answer to. Um, I, Like I said, I just don't want to focus my energy on things that could potentially make my life uh, more difficult.
0: Damian, tell me about where you are in your life today.
1: Honestly, I think I am probably uh, happier than I've ever been in my entire life. That's not to say that there aren't challenges or that there aren't, you know, still things um, that I'm learning for, you know, keep in mind for all intents and purposes, I am in a lot of ways only about eight years old. I went into prison when I was a child, when I was a teenager. So I never learned how to function in the adult world gradually the way everyone else does. You know, I never learned things like how to pay rent or how to get health insurance. I didn't even know how to use a debit card whenever I got out of prison. Uh, I had never had a bank account. Like I said, um, all of my life experiences as an adult comes from the past eight years. And also, like I said, I can't even remember the first two of those. So, yes, there are very, very real challenges uh, when you're going through stuff like that and trying to figure out how you're going to make a living and, and keep moving forward while... You know, going through a nervous breakdown from sudden overexposure to life on the streets. You know, there's been a lot of challenges. But at the same time, I think I enjoy life now more than I ever have before.
0: What do you hope that people take away from your story?
1: Hmm. You know, I honestly don't know that there is a great deal from the prison stuff to take away that's going to be of any benefit. Uh, Maybe, you know, I think some people maybe get inspired by things like that, uh, by reading or seeing movies or documentaries about something, uh, anything about people who've been through some sort of horrific circumstance or situation and, and have survived it. I think, you know, it gives some people... You know, maybe some sort of hope or inspiration, or or maybe even um, if someone has a, a family member or a loved one in prison, maybe it gives them some inspiration or some hope that everything's going to turn out okay in their case. But I guess the the main thing that I I want people to take away from it is that uh, we are all in our own prisons in one way or another. in in one form or another, whether it's an emotional prison, a mental prison, or, you know, a a real prison prison, we are all uh, locked into prisons of some sort and that there are ways out of them. There are means and techniques and ways we can direct our thoughts that allow us to come out the other side, uh, not only survive those things, but uh, come out the other side thriving.
0: I love that. Thank you, Damien. That was beautiful. Thank You're so you. So articulate and thoughtful. Thank you. Before we end the episode, we do a little thing called rapid fire. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to fire off some questions and you can share the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Favorite day of the week and why?
1: <sighs> Wednesday, because it is uh, a day I don't have to go to the gym.
0: Favorite city?
1: New York City.
0: What matters most is?
1: Uh, Love and taking care of each other.
0: Favorite food? Pizza. Favorite quote?
1: Uh, I can tell you what the quote is, but I can't tell you who it was that originally said it, Um, but it was one that really inspired me. He who controls himself controls the world.
0: Your greatest love?
1: Hmm, ceremonial magic. Yes. And Lori. Yes. Oh, I thought you meant other than people. That's yeah.
0: <laughs> and very important. Who are we supporting today and why?
1: We are supporting the Feline Rescue in Denver because uh, Colorado as a whole is an incredibly special place um, to me. It's part of my healing journey, as well as cats and kittens. I have two rescues here in my house, uh, and I know that both of them would have died if I had not saved them. And I know that I probably would have died if they had not saved me. So... Uh, we are trying to help kittens in Colorado this week
0: awesome I love that you can contact Damien and find links to all of his stuff on our website allthewiserpodcast.com while you are there you can sign up for our newsletter did you like the episode any topics you'd like for us to explore give us your feedback I would also like to thank those of you who follow and engage with us on our Instagram feed. And a special shout out to our loyal listener, Leah. Thank you for sharing your beautiful story and tribute to your brother after listening to our episode on grief with Nora McInerney. You can find that episode and more on our website. And to close, we want to remind you that life is, in fact, fragile. Don't put off the things you love for one more moment. Until next time, thanks for listening. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Pod Kit Productions. Sound engineering is by Matt Sav at Fairfax Village Studios. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at allthewiserpodcasts. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
1: Oh, burger time.
0: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.